You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. All right. Well, good morning. How are we? If you are streaming with us this morning, thank you for tuning in. If you're a guest with us this morning, welcome. Glad to have you here. We are living right now in perhaps the most technologically advanced era of human history. We have at our disposal tools that makes our lives significantly easier than it was even perhaps 20 years ago. Phones, for example, are more powerful than the computer that originally landed us on the moon. Can you believe that? The camera on your phone, on most of your phone, some of you have some sketchy old phones, but most of you have cameras on your phones that beat out cameras that were at the top of the line 25 years ago. We are more connected today than we have ever been before, no thanks to the internet. When something happens around the world, you are likely to hear about it first on Twitter or social media than before it hits the news. News travels almost instantaneously on the internet. Technology has truly innovated so many aspects of our lives and made our lives in so many ways so much easier, amen? And it has also made our lives a whole lot more difficult. Yes, a hearty amen from God's people. We live not only in the most technologically advanced era of human history, but perhaps also the busiest era as a result of our technological advancement. There's a great book that I highly recommend everyone read. It's called Seculosity. It's by a man named David Zoll, founder of Mockingbird Ministries. Zoll talks about how technology was supposed to make life easier, provide more leisure time, and actually it created the opposite effect. He says, towards the end of the 19th century, labor-saving devices promised to transform the lives of housewives and domestic servants across Europe and North America. Thanks to technological innovations like the vacuum cleaner, a carpet could be spotless in a matter of minutes. Amen. I love to vacuum. It's just a personal thing about your pastor. I love to vacuum. It's a, it's a problem, actually. I, uh, yeah, I, I really love a good vacuum. Though. Talk to me about it sometime. Fellow vacuum lovers, come talk to me sometime. Yeah, amen. Washing machines made time-consuming, he continues, made time-consuming contraptions like the mangle obsolete. Yet, as the historian Ruth Schwartz Cowan demonstrates in her 1983 book, More Work for Mother, the result was not an increase in leisure time among those charged with doing the housework. Instead, as the efficiency of housework increased, so did the standards of cleanliness and domestic order we came to expect. Now that the hallway could be kept spotless, it had to be kept spotless. Now that the fraying sleeves could be easily mended, they were all but outlawed. You could say it this way for us in 2022. Now that you have a cell phone, you're expected to answer no matter where you are. Now that you have text messages, you're expected to respond even when you are meeting with other people. We are busy, are we not? Life is busy. There was a recent survey that showed 75% of parents are too busy to read to their children at night. 33% of Americans are living with extreme stress daily as a result of their busy lives. Nearly 50% of Americans say they regularly lie awake at night because of stress from how busy they are. Now, I don't have the answer to these problems, but I do, practically speaking, have a solution for myself uh, that, that might 
be helpful for you as well. One thing that I like to do in the midst of my busy life, and it is busy, is I set a great amount of reminders on my phone to help me remember to do certain things, like take out the trash or uh, put shock in our above ground swimming pool. I have reminders all throughout the week. My phone chirps at me constantly to remind me of things that I will otherwise inevitably forget in the milieu of all the things that I have to do. So reminders are helpful. They're a helpful practice. And this morning, as we embark on now the third chapter of our verse-by-verse study through the book of Titus that we've titled The Culture War, what we find here are four reminders, four things that we need to be reminded of as our life gets busy, as we face the day-to-day distractions, we need to be reminded of the wisdom of God for our day-to-day living. We need to be reminded of Paul's words to Titus in Titus chapter three. As I mentioned at the welcome, this is our second to the last study in Titus. Just amazing how quickly this has gone. We're close to the end. And as Paul closes out this letter, he reminds Titus of four important truths that are going to serve Titus well as he moves into this hostile culture in Crete. Remember, it's an island off the coast of Greece filled with all kinds of paganism and idolatry and immorality and hostility towards the Christian faith. So these were important reminders for Titus as he goes into that hostile culture. They're important reminders for us as well as we live in this increasingly hostile culture that we are currently in. So let's jump in, and I want you to take notes of this. If you are a physical copy Bible person, then I want you to maybe make notes, highlight, take a pen. If you're not a physical copy Bible person, I want you to deeply consider becoming a physical copy Bible person. Uh, It's helpful to have an actual Bible. I know what many of you are thinking. I have a Bible on my phone. The difference is your physical copy of the Bible doesn't have Facebook on it. It's just a game of distractions, right? A physical copy of the Bible is helpful. But I want you to make note of which of these reminders might be the most helpful for you to begin practicing on a more consistent basis. I suspect some of these will be rather easy for you, uh, not, not too challenging at all, and I suspect some of these will be very difficult for you. And so I want you to make note of some of these things and begin to pay more attention, think more deeply, practice them on a regular basis. Let's start with our very favorite, and probably, I'm being sarcastic, uh, least favorite, reminder of the entire sermon, we're gonna get it out of the way first, a reminder to submit, a reminder to submit. Verses one and two, Paul says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards most people. Towards all people. Yeah, dang it. All right. So notice that we began chapter one talking about the appropriate conduct in the church. What we said was if we're going to make an impact on the world in this culture war, first and foremost, it is most important that we get the church in order. The conduct here has to be in order before we worry about anything else. So we talked about qualified godly leadership. The Bible calls these people elders and what those elders are to do with individuals in the church whose conduct is not godly, but on the contrary, divisive. They are to rebuke them strongly, remove them if necessary. And then we moved into chapter two and we moved from conduct conduct in the church to conduct in the home. And and what we said was the conduct in the church is important. It's first. But if we're also not living on a day-to-day basis, our individual lives, the standards that God prescribes us, whether we are older, younger men or women, 
then we will still fail to make an, a meaningful impact on the world because we'll be living in hypocrisy. We'll be saying something matters to us when we ourselves disqualify ourselves from saying it because we don't live it. So it's important that we deal with the church, and then chapter two deals with the home, and then we get to chapter three, and finally, we move into our conduct in the public square, in the midst of those people that you live among at your work or at school or people in the world that are not necessarily Christians and are not necessarily a part of the church that you are a part of. And there's a lot here in this passage. There's a lot here in these first two verses. And really all of these commandments in verses one and two fall under this idea of submission. They have to do with this concept of submission and that submission works itself out in two different directions. So we'll talk about it in two different ways, two different groups that we are to submit to. Number one, we are to submit to authorities. Authorities. Now, what does Paul mean by this? What does he mean by rulers and authorities? There's two terms here in the Greek, arche for rulers, exousia for authorities. Both of these, when they're put together, typically mean governing authorities. These are governing authority figures, government. You could think of it that way in a modern sense. Jesus uses these exact two words in Luke chapter 12, verse 11, and he is conveying the idea of governing authorities. He says, and when they bring you, talking about you, Christians, before, sorry, wait, before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. So the synagogues, the religious authorities, the rulers and authorities, the governing people. Now, of course, this is precisely what happened to Jesus, isn't it? If you remember, uh, upon his crucifixion, on the way to the cross, he was brought first to uh, a representative of the synagogue, Caiaphas, the high priest. And then from there, he was transferred to a representative of the rulers and authorities, Pilate, the Roman governor of that area. And what was Jesus' model for submission to these governing authorities? What did he do? Did he fight back? Was he violent? Did he rally the troops? Start an insurrection? Begin a revolution? He maintained the truth. He answered their questions, but he did so respectfully and without force. Paul is telling Titus essentially to model the Lord's behavior, model the Lord's example, and the way that the Lord conducted himself before rulers and authorities follow Jesus' example. Now, it's not just these two passages that speak to this. It's not just the gospel and uh, Titus chapter three. There are other places in the New Testament. The New Testament is replete with examples of why we should submit ourselves to governing authorities. I'm gonna give you it up front just so you can be thinking about it. It has everything to do with living above reproach. This is the big theme really throughout the entirety of this series so far, living above reproach. But we're gonna talk about two other passages that I think really kind of dive a little deeper into why we are to live in submission to governing authorities. How does that play itself out? Because there are some things that we need to navigate through that, some clarity we need on particular topics. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 15 is the first one here. Peter says, be subject for whose sake? The Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of 
God. Everyone wants to know, what's the will of God? Well, Peter tells us at least a little bit about the will of God here. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Stop right there. That last sentence is the singular reason I believe that Peter, Paul, and Jesus all both say and exhibit submission to governing authorities. That anyone you uh, will have hostility from in governing places, that by the way you live above reproach, it will silence the ignorance of those foolish people. That people will not be able to bring a charge against you based on the way that you interact with those governing authorities. Now, as Christians, we need to hear this. As American Christians, we are in desperate need of this reminder. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the topic of injustice. And one of the things that I said in there is that uh, you should use the voice that you have when you can. We live today in 2022 in America in a different governing structure than Paul, Jesus, and Peter did in the ancient world in a different part of the globe, right? Uh, sometimes we interpret the what looks like silence on specific social issues from Peter, Paul, and Jesus uh, as a model that we should also be silent on. And I, I would argue actually that the reason they were silent is because they didn't really have a way of publicly engaging with these topics in the same manner that we do. We have been given a voice. We do have a right to exercise our voice through legal means, such as voting, and we should do that when we are able to do that. I fully believe that. We should be unapologetic about it. There are people who believe, who would seek to silence Christians from imposing their moral views on American law. That is foolishness to me. It is absolutely foolish when people are like, you need to leave your religion out of the way you vote. That's a stupid view. Because everyone who comes to vote for moral and ethical issues is doing so based on a moral and ethical position. The only difference between us and anyone else is that our moral ethical position comes from one source and there comes from another. There's no difference. Otherwise, atheists, non-Christians, Christians are all engaging in the same discussion with regard to what they believe should be normative. I think that's a dumb view, personally. It's foolish, it's a poorly constructed argument. We use our voice when we can because we have been given it. With that said though, let's talk about the other side of this for a moment. We do so respectfully and we do so within the bounds of the law. So uh, a lot of my news feed right now, I don't know about yours, mine is uh, focused on particular hearings right now with regard to events that took place on January 6th a couple years ago. Tons of coverage right now happening. And regardless of your political leanings, I don't really want to go there this morning for this. What, what I want us to focus on is the, the reality that as Christians, it should be very easy for us to recognize the blatant disregard for Scripture that a very small group of people demonstrated in their actions on that day. There were many people there that day, many thousands of people there that day doing nothing wrong, peacefully protesting, fully within your rights. I have no problem with that at all in any context. The world in this part of the world gives you the freedom to make your voice known, and sometimes peacefully protesting is perfectly acceptable. I don't have a problem with that. I have a problem with violence and law-breaking, especially when it is Christians who are involved. So there were many self-proclaimed Christians involved in that small contingency of people who violated the law, disregarded the commandments of God, and they are commandments, by the way. These are not suggestions. You don't need to pray about this. You don't need to get wise counsel about whether you should live above reproach. It's a commandment of God. God said it. We should do it. They were not above reproach in the way they acted, and they brought reproach upon the name of not only Christ, but the rest of Christendom. 
Because the world looks at that and goes, so this is what Christians are doing? Holding crosses as they are punching people in authority, breaking doors down? Um, now maybe you could make the case that they were acting out of their love for their country. I love my country. They were acting out of their love for their country. If so, here's what that means. It means they prioritize their love of country over the commandments of God. That's not patriotism, that's idolatry. That's idolatry. There is a reason why we are commanded to live above reproach with regard to governing authorities. And you need to understand something about the history of our faith to really get the, the, the grasp of this. If you go all the way back to the ancient world, in the very beginning stages of the early church, beginning with Jesus, the number one thing that Christians are accused of on a daily basis, the number one thing that Christians are arrested for and put to death for is they were accused of being insurrectionist in Rome. Read the history. This is what you were going to find. On the basis that they wouldn't worship the emperor. Now, to be clear, we will not worship the emperor. We will not bow to the emperor. We will not be made to violate our conscience. What did Peter say when he was arrested? You remember when he was preaching the gospel and he was told to shut up over and over and over again and he wouldn't be quiet and they brought him in. He was confronted by the authorities to stop. Acts 5.29, it said, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God and not men. So understand, we will not be made to violate our conscience. It does not mean, on the contrary, that we will act with insolence or violence. We will not be seen as revolutionaries or insurrectionists. This is actually the whole basis of the charge against Jesus himself. If you remember, uh, what did Pilate ask Jesus in John 18, 33? Anyone remember? Are you the king of the Jews, Pilate asks. Now, why does he ask him that question? Because this was the charge that was being brought to him, that Jesus is claiming to be a king, his people are, are calling him a king, and in a Roman governor's ears, what he's thinking is, well, but wait a minute, we already have a king in the emperor, so are you seeking to overthrow our king and establish your own kingdom here? Are you the king of these Jewish people? And how did Jesus respond to that? John eighteen thirty six. my kingdom is not of this world, Pilate. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. You would see war. You would see violence. You would see revolution. That I might be not delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. So he doesn't omit the truth. Yes, Pilate, I am a king. Just not of this world. Just not in the way that you think I am a threat to your current emperor. So this is Peter's input. This is an important input that we get here in 1 Peter chapter 2. Let's look at one more from Paul. Are we having fun? Good, good. I'm glad to hear it. Romans, that's why I'm doing this, for your fun, right? <laughs> Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. He says, every person is to be in subjection to governing authorities, for there is, this is big, no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Uh, wrap your mind around that for a minute. Governing authorities are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Paul argues that to submit to the government means not only to remain above reproach, but also because those authorities that are in place, they're in place because God has placed them there. 
So when we act with violence, we bring reproach against the name of Christ, but we're also in opposition to the will of God. This is how God acts throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, by the way. God usually carries out his will, typically judgment against Israel. When you read throughout the histories of Israel, he does so by raising up godless kings in other nations to bring condemnation upon that nation or discipline until they would repent and then he brings them out of it. So the idea that, that, well, but what about bad kings? What about bad presidents? God has been in the business for thousands of years of doing this. It's how he works in his economy. It's how he accomplishes sometimes his will. This is serious stuff. We, we need to be reminded of this. We need a reminder to submit to governing authorities. If our authorities compel us to disobey the commandments of God, we respectfully decline, but we do not become revolutionaries. After Peter said, we must obey God and not men, do you know what happened to him? Do you, know what, do you remember what followed that? In Acts chapter 5, verse 40, it says, when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they, they make this bold stand, we must obey God, not men, and they get the crap kicked out of them as a result of it. And then what happens? Do they regather and go, we need to, we need to fight back. We need to, we need to burn this place down. No, look at verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They left there singing, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Singing hymns and praise songs because we just got beaten for the name of Jesus. This is radical faith. This is radical Christianity. Rejoicing that God would find you worthy to suffer for his namesake. It goes against every fiber of our being. It's, it wars against your instinct. And yet this is what we are called as Christians to do. We need to be reminded to submit to authority. Second, we are to submit to all people. Read verse two again. He says that we are to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Paul moves away from authorities and more generally just to kind of all people, just everyone. And again, this is very practical instruction with regard to how we are to live. Let's walk through each of these quickly. He says, first, we are to speak evil of no one. This is the Greek term blasphemeo. It's a word that we get our English word blasphemy from. It's a word that means to defame, to slander, to revile. In other words, as Christians, we are never to speak maliciously of anyone, regardless of whether or not they're Christians. This is talking about the world. This is talking about the public square in chapter 3. And, and, and so what he's saying is that as Christians, you can call into question things that are hostile or wrong to the Christian faith. You should absolutely speak truth. You should address error. You should speak to lies that are being propagated in the world or in the community that you live in. But you are never to speak maliciously about the person who is propagating the lies, regardless of their faith perspective. Just because you disagree with someone who's not a Christian doesn't mean that they're fair game to maliciously shred verbally. It does not give us that right. Again, we live above reproach. Two, he says we are to avoid quarreling. Now, this is particularly a hard one on social media. It's so easy, hear me, it's so easy to get caught up in the debates and in fighting and in, and, and it, it drives me personally, I mean, I'm, I'm talking to myself more than anyone here, it drives me crazy 
to see people post things that I'm like, that's just blatantly not true. It's just blatantly, and sometimes I can't handle it, and, and I will uh, do my best to attempt, and then I'm like, no, don't do that, and delete. The Holy Spirit's like, delete it, right? So it just, it's a whole thing. Don't, here, do, do me a favor, okay? Do me a favor, Christian. Take a post-it note or a sticky note, put it on your screen of your computer, all right? And just write the words, don't take the bait. Don't, ta- or, or put a picture of a mouse caught in a mouse trap, and put an arrow and put me, right? Like, that's all you need. It will not serve you well if you find yourself quarreling in this category. Number three, he says, show perfect courtesy to all people, more literally to exhibit gentleness, to exhibit gentleness to others. Now, when you put all three of these together, here's the idea that you come away with. You come away with the idea that we are to live with other people in the community and in the world in a non-inflammatory manner. I think that's a good way of of framing this. In a non-inflammatory manner. It doesn't mean that you don't speak truth. It doesn't mean that you don't stand for your convictions, but you do so in a non-inflammatory manner. We don't speak badly about other people. We avoid quarreling with them, and we are gentle in our responses. That's the thrust of this. As we submit to all people, we do so in a non-inflammatory manner. We need this reminder, don't we? It's it's not one we want. It's not a a wanted reminder. It's certainly a needed reminder. Let's move to the second reminder, a reminder to sympathize, verses three through seven. Now, I I love these next verses because uh, really these next verses admit that verses one and two that we just talked about are gonna be really difficult for us. It's really hard to submit yourself to other people who are um, hostile or in disagreement with fundamental things that you believe. It's a very tall task, I understand that, to submit yourself to people who you think are actually going down the wrong path or the wrong trail. And so Paul reminds us why we should submit ourselves to all people. Look at verse three. He says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. He's saying you can submit yourself to and be kind and gentle to those who hate you, to those who are godless, to those who celebrate evil because you yourself were at one time no different than they are. You remember what it's like. You remember how hopeless it was, how hopeless you were. You remember the evil thoughts that you had. You remember the unspeakable things that you used to do that you would be embarrassed to talk about now. Look, I remember this stuff. I remember it well. I remember the old life. I remember coming home at three or four in the morning, drunk and high out of my mind, completely empty on the inside. I remember laying down and hoping that I wouldn't puke or pass out, feeling totally alone. Life of the party all throughout the night. There wasn't a stranger to me. And when I would get home, I felt empty, alone, and unknown, unloved, completely isolated, confused. I remember those feelings. I remember the questions that I had, the skepticism about God and the church and other Christians. I remember moments, I remember this one time, I'd come home, it was probably two in the morning, drunk out of my mind, and for some reason, a Bible that my grandmother had given me was on my dresser, and I remember picking it up and thinking, because of how bad I felt, I wanted to die inside, and I remember thinking, I need to start reading this more so I don't feel this way. And I remember opening it up to Nehemiah, of all places, and reading a little bit of Nehemiah. 
Spoiler alert, I did not read more after that uh, for a long time. It, it didn't, that wasn't like my turning point. But, but I remember these feelings very well. They're not lost on me. And I pray to God they'll never be lost on me. Because it's remembering that part of my life that makes it so much easier to give grace to those who are living it now. When I look at someone who is lost, I can connect with the feeling that they may not be willing to admit their feeling, but I know they're feeling deep down. Because I've lived it, I've walked that path, I know what it feels like. And it makes it so much easier when I'm in connection with that to give grace, to be merciful, to be compassionate towards that person. It's remembering that apart from the grace of God, I'm not any different than them. I'm no different than they are. Keep reading verses four through seven. When the goodness of and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus our Lord. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That is a needed reminder. It's so much easier to judge the world, to judge non-Christians, to be hostile to those who are hostile to us, to be harsh with those that I don't relate well to when I'm not in connection with this. This is where I believe a lot of Christians go wrong, is especially in the context of the culture war. If we're not careful, we end up developing this sort of tribalistic us versus them mentality. They are wrong. They are the enemy. They are the problem. They just need to go away. They are ruining the world. When actuality, they are not different from you or I apart from the grace of God. And they need the message of the gospel desperately. One way to overcome the us versus them mentality is to be reminded that at one time you are no different than they are currently. And that allows us to more easily sympathize with them. We need to be reminded of that. A reminder to submit. A reminder to sympathize. Third, a reminder to serve. Keep reading verse 8. Paul says, the saying is trustworthy, and I, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Paul is saying, Titus, I want you to insist on everything that I am saying to you in this letter. Why, Paul? For what purpose? So that those who have believed the gospel will serve others through good works. Listen, good works actually matter. In our uh, more reformed perspective, good works is like a bad word, right? Because salvation is by grace and faith alone and not through your works. So let's clarify this for a minute. Let's talk about this. I think this is something that we get confused on. Salvation is by grace and through faith and nothing else. No works needed. Nothing you can do to earn your way into heaven. There's nothing you can do to earn your way into good standing. You were dead in your trespasses and your sins, Paul says. The work of salvation is solely a work of Christ and Christ alone. I have approximately one tattoo, and it says, in Christ alone. It is a reminder to me every day that where I stand and what I do and my identity in Christ has nothing to do with me, but everything to do with the work of Jesus the Christ. It is not my doing. There is nothing. I cannot say anything to God to boast about any part. I cannot say, well, at least that one time when I was drunk, I read Nehemiah. <laughs> that bears no weight on the work of God in my life. With that said, 
That does not mean that good works have no place in the Christian experience. It just means that they have no place in the salvation experience. They do matter. The Bible has a lot to say of them. Jesus himself spoke well of them in the passage that we get our name from as this church, City on a Hill, as Matthew 5, 14 through 16. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Good works matter to Jesus. They are important, just not in the salvation process. Let me give you three quick points on good works. Good works, A, require practice. Notice that Paul says, be careful to devote yourself to good works. Be careful, be meticulous. Give care to practicing this. Give specific and focused attention, intentionality to practicing good works. Don't just do it once and check it off the list, but devote yourself to the ongoing practice of it. Make it a habit in your life. Become known by other people for good works. This requires practice because it's not natural to you. You have a sin nature. I'm my own number one fan, right? And so if I'm not careful, if I'm not devoting myself intentionally to serving others, I'm going to be real interested in just kind of serving myself. So it needs to be practiced. We need a reminder to practice it. B, good works prove genuine faith. There's that great passage in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, where he, he says in verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith, but he does not have works, who is, who is benefited by that? What good is that? What good is it if you have the WWJD bracelet? What good is it if you have the Christian fish sticker on your car, but you don't ever do anything? You don't live your faith out in any meaningful manner. He goes on in verses 15 and 16. He says, if a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? I mean, imagine that for a moment. Put yourself in that position. You're out and about, you're in public, you see a homeless person, maybe it's the winter time, it's cold, and you see a homeless person that is in desperate need, they're not trying to do anything nefarious, they really just want food, and they're freezing, and they're destitute, and you come to them and you say, hey, brother, I'm a Christian, the joy of the Lord is in me. None of you ever speak that way, I don't know why I'm setting this up that way. You know, you look cold, you look hungry, I, I, wanna, I, wanna, out of, I, I wanna out of my faith to bless you so that you're not hungry and that you're not cold anymore. And then you just turn around and you get in your car and you drive off. What, that person would be like, what? What faith are you talking about? And that's exactly what James says, verse 17. He says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead, not living, not real. Part of our role in the culture war in serving others through good works is demonstrating the, the reality of our faith. When all you do is talk about Jesus and you never really put your faith into action, you never really impact others in a tangible manner, no one is taking that seriously. No, no one is listening at that point. You're just talking. You're not, you don't mean any of this. And there are so many opportunities to play this out. One of my favorite partnerships we have here at City on a Hill is with the Women's Choice Resource Center. Uh, Women's Choice Resource Center is a uh, Christ-centered, gospel-centered, crisis pregnancy center. 
They minister to women who are at risk for abortion. They come in, they share with them the love of God, the love of the gospel, the joy of, of life, and thousands of lives at this point have been saved as a result of tangible work in this center from volunteers, many of whom you serve in those capacities. Some of you are, are very outspokenly, and I applaud this, very outspokenly pro-life. Our faith historically is a pro-life faith. You will not find the opposite until about the last hundred years in Christian history. I can speak to this because I have a whole degree in Christian history. I know history well. This is a conviction, a core conviction of our faith that dates back to the beginning of the time of Jesus. With that being said, if it is a specific close thing to your heart that you are passionate about, let me ask you, what are you doing about it? What are you doing about it beyond just talking? Are you serving in a tangible manner? Have you partnered with places like this where you can actually go and meet with women and talk with them about the gospel? This is how you put your faith into action. Otherwise, it's just words. It doesn't really impact anyone. It doesn't prove anything. Number three, good works are profitable for people. They are excellent and profitable for people is what Paul says. And this sort of dovetails in the last part. When you actually begin to serve others through good works, you're not only demonstrating the vitality of your faith, but you're actually doing a good thing for other people. The women at Women's Choice Resource Center and the babies that have been saved have been impacted tangibly as a result of these good works. We have another great ministry that we partner with here at City on a Hill. They're here every Monday through Friday in the morning in the gym. They're called Meals on Wheels. This ministry provides food for people who are elderly or handicapped and are not able to adequately provide a meal for themselves. It is a phenomenal ministry that if you have 45 minutes to an hour in your day, one day or five days or any time in between to go and serve in this ministry, you will make a profitable difference in the lives of the people that you serve. It's, you literally show up, they give you the list, they give you the, the, the meals, you get in your car, you drive the route, you knock on the door, you give them what, what they have been provided, pray for them, have a, a nice conversation with them, bless them in the name of the Lord, and what an impact, what a tremendous benefit that ministry is. It is a good work that is profitable. We have many of places at, at City on a Hill where you have the ability to serve in a meaningful manner that impacts other people, whether it be through small groups, media team, worship team, host team, coffee, hospitality team, blesses my soul every single Sunday, right? Uh, sheepdogs. One of them that I want to really highlight is the All-Stars Kids Ministry. Uh, this is one that I think a lot of people think like, well, I just I don't I don't want to do that, or it's hard, or it's kids, and they're whatever. And man, that we got to change the culture of how we think about children in the kingdom. Imagine if we had the heart for children that Jesus had for children. What would the kids ministry look like? It'd be very different. I understand it's tiring. I understand you're tired. I understand life is busy. I get it. I do. But is that not a worthy discipline to give yourself to with potentially eternal impact attached to it? Is that not a good work that not only demonstrates the vitality of your faith, but also impacts little people potentially into the eternity by, by being a vessel God uses to do his work that only he's able to do in their lives? What an amazing experience. What an amazing opportunity. 
I want you to ask yourself this question, and this is a hard question, but it's a necessary one. Would the church or the world be impacted at all if you died tomorrow and suddenly your good works were no longer available? So I'm not talking about you as a person, your love, your, the people who love you. I'm not, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking, would there be a vacuum? Would there be a vacancy from your good works if you died tomorrow? If you died tomorrow, would the things that you are doing to live out your faith be noticed and would it impair the church in some manner? Would people go like, oh my gosh, that service or that example is going to be dreadfully missed. What a loss this is to the kingdom. If the answer to that is not really, you need to evaluate the practice of your faith. If the absence of your faith means virtually nothing, it's worth thinking deeply about because faith without works is dead, James says. It's good for no one. This is your reminder, your annoying reminder, to serve others. We need these reminders. A reminder to submit, a reminder to sympathize, a reminder to serve, and last but not least, a reminder to separate. Verses 9 through 11, start in verse 9. He says, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Um, essentially, what this is talking about here, I will, I will skip ahead so that we get out of here on time. This is just going back to chapter 1 with div- divisive people. What he's doing is he's reemphasizing what we've already talked about. People who are, are bringing a distraction away from the gospel. People who come in with false ideology or false teaching or various things that have nothing to do with the kingdom of God. They become divisive. They won't stop. They're creating division. Paul says in verses 10 and 11, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and self-condemned. He's just reiterating it here. He, he calls them actually, he uses the term hereticos. It's the Greek word from which we get our word heretic. These are people who promote false ideologies, false teachings, and distractions to the gospel. Paul says have nothing to do with them. By the way, that carries into social media as well, by the way. I know that sounds harsh. It's necessary. I'm not, I'm not talking about unfriending non-Christians. I'm not talking about unfriending Christians who have disagreements on non-essential issues. I'm talking about people who are in your community of faith and who are disregarding the leadership of the church by promoting something that is divisive to the kingdom and to the the distraction to the gospel. You are to remove them from your life. They pose a threat. We will not be taken off mission here at City on a Hill. We won't allow for it. Now, what if they repent? Then you rejoice and you welcome them back in wholeheartedly. You rejoice that they were lost and that they have seen the error of what they were doing and that they have repented and they are restored fully. You don't hold them at an arm's length. You don't hold them at a questionable distance. You bring them back into the fold of the body, no questions asked. But if they don't, they pose a threat. They are to be separated. These are helpful reminders, at least for me. I I need to be reminded of this stuff. They're not things that I I like to think about regularly. They're things that I need to think more often of. The world is complicated. Ministry is difficult. Life is busy. I need to remember to submit to authorities, even when they don't deserve my respect, even when I think that they are, are, are perhaps even evil. I know that I am to live above reproach. I need to submit to all people 
by not quarreling with them, by not calling them malicious names or, or posing threats, and certainly by being more gentle with them. I need to sympathize with those who are hostile to me, remembering that apart from the saving grace of God, I'm no different than they are. I need that reminder in my life. I need to remember to serve others, though it's na- unnatural for me in my, in my flesh, I would rather devote myself to me, and so I have to intentionally practice good works for other people. I know that it, it demonstrates the vitality of my faith. I know that it has real life benefit to other people, so I need that reminder in my life. I need the reminder, as hard as it is, to separate myself from people who proclaim to be a Christian and yet promote godless ideology that seeks to be a distraction to the gospel. I need these reminders because here's the deal. This is the, this is the point with regard to the culture war. If we do this somewhat consistently, not perfectly, you won't do it perfectly. If you do it somewhat consistently, the world will have very little bad to say of you and us. They may hate what you believe. They may hate, they will hate what you believe. They will hate what you advocate for. They will have great difficulty accusing you of much because you'll be above reproach. Living above reproach is so important. It's so important. I cannot overemphasize enough how important it is. It takes away the bullets out of the world's gun against us. It removes anything they have to say of us. Now, I challenged you last week to share the message of grace. And I, I, I do want to follow this up. I was uh, informed this morning as I was getting ready for first service uh, from a member here that she took the challenge seriously. She went Monday to a friend who is uh, suffering from a medical condition right now. She went to spend some time with her. She shared the gospel with her, and that woman professed faith in Christ. Yeah. When we are obedient to share the gospel, God, that God does his work. And we don't know what that work looks like, but God is always at work when we are sharing the gospel. So I want to reissue that challenge to you. If you didn't do it this past week, I want you to, to consider again, ask the Holy Spirit to bring someone to mind that need, needs to hear the message of grace and share that message with them. But here's another challenge that I have for you. I want you to consider these four reminders. I want you, as I mentioned in the beginning, to identify the one that you struggle the most with. Just one. Don't be a, don't, don't. Don't go over the board here, okay? Be reasonable. Just one. Write it down. Set your timers. Do whatever you need to do for it to be in front of you every day and begin to intentionally practice it more. See the work of God happen in your life as you do it. This stuff matters a great deal. If this body of Christ, forget about the rest of the world, if this body of Christ takes seriously the commitments that we are to make, not only as a church, not only in the home, but in the public square and the way that we live our lives above reproach, we will be the light in the world and the city set upon a hill that Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter five. It will make a difference. This is world-changing stuff. It starts here with you, with us. So consider it deeply. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the reminder, again, of the need to live above reproach. It's so challenging for us. It's so difficult for us to submit and sympathize and serve and separate. And yet we know that when we we live these things out with consistency, we live in such a a way where, where it's very, very challenging to bring any kind of accusation against us. And this is the, the, the kind of witness that you desire us to live.
that we never act of our own accord. We never act in a vacuum. We are always acting as representatives, as ambassadors of your name, of your kingdom. Help us remember that, how we love you and how we honor you and we thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We've got, we've got one more week. We're going to talk next week about the importance of living in community in the culture war. And then we've got a few weeks off. James will be here on the 14th. I will actually be out of town that weekend at Refuge Church with Taryn Phillips. The 21st, he will be here. The 28th, we're going to be talking about marriage. Chris is in the 4th. I'm just giving you the whole schedule so you know. And then September 11th, we are beginning a new series for the fall. It will take us through the fall uh, called Coffee Cup Verses. And uh, we're going to be talking about different verses each week that you might find on Mardell's top-selling coffee cups and why they are almost certainly pulled right out of context and what they mean in their context. God bless you. We'll see you next time.